welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and drinking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brebeck. And this is Parker Pine. Oh, hey, look at that. Yep, we are back in the Parker Pine-verse. Heart specialist Parker Pine. This week we are doing The Case of the Distressed Lady. Catherine Brobeck, can you tell us a little bit about the publication history on this one? Yeah. Women's Pictorial published this October 22, 1932 in the UK. But, but, and this is actually not surprising because we've talked about this before. It was previously published in the US under... Are you happy? If not, consult Mr. Parker Pine, which was published in Cosmopolitan Magazine in August of 1932. And I actually have something even a little bit better. Do you know what the title was when it was published in Cosmo? What was it? The Pretty Girl Who Wanted a Ring. Don't we all think of ourselves (laughs) as pretty girls who, you know, a ring would be like nice. But I have one, even one better. When it was published in Woman's Pictorial, apparently it had a different title. I, I, I believe that The Case of the Distressed Lady was the title that it was given when it was collected. But in Woman's Pictorial as a standalone story, it was called Faked with an exclamation point. Which actually is a fantastic title. I mean, it's great. Unfortunately, it kind of spoils this entire podcast. (laughs) Well, it's like the pretty girl who wanted a ring is a little too descriptive. And then faked is a little too spoilery. If you combine them, it's like, wow. Well, you don't have to read this story because... (laughs) We're done. And we're done. Good night. We're done. (laughs) The case of the distressed lady, it kind of makes sense that they gave it that title when they collected it because... You know what? I actually like how misleading it is. It's misleading, but it's all... Also, the first six stories within this collection begin with the case of the... And then we have these kind of great descriptors, middle-aged wife, discontented soldier, distressed lady. Then what we have coming up, so stay tuned, discontented husband, city clerk, and rich woman. So, you know, a little slice of life here. It's a theme. Let's move on to our victim here, who is Lady Naomi Dortheimer, who has... A large diamond ring, which... Very, very large diamond ring. Very large, which, unbeknownst to her, has been stolen. Calorar! Yes, dear listener, this is one of those Christie short stories that involves a jewel theft as opposed to a murder, but I quite enjoy these jewel theft stories. And Nobody likes to lose a diamond, Kemper. <laughs> no one likes to lose a diamond. It is perhaps a distressed lady's best friend. A kiss on the hand may be quite continental, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. Or perhaps her worst enemy. Or perhaps her worst enemy. Well, let's talk about our suspect, because there's only one. Yeah, there is, shockingly. Given <laughs> given the fact that we generally go into this podcast saying, guess who this suspect is? It's everyone. And it is here, too, but it's it is. Yeah, except one. we just don't have anybody else in the story. So it's one person. It's Mrs. Daphne. Well, it says St. John, but I would like to assume it's San Jen. Is it? See, I wasn't sure if St. John is one of those names that I know when it's a first name, such as in Jane Eyre. Shout out to Sinjin Rivers. Yeah. It's certainly Sinjin, but is it pronounced that way when it's a surname or is it just St. John? 
Well, I want to leave this as a conversation for our listeners who will surely tell us one way or the other, but I kind of want to say her name is Mrs. Daphne Senjin. Okay. Yeah. Lest we get into another Bovril, Bovril debacle. <laughs> I know. Yes, everyone. We do realize it's Bovril. Our apologies. We said Bovril approximately 8,000 times on that episode. You know what? It's a bovine and I just want to make that point. So the natural assumption would be that even in British English, it should be right. Bovril. Yeah. Let's give ourselves a little credit here. We went through the etymology of the word and it, it does derive from bovine. So why wouldn't it be Bovril? Come on. It's not but, crazy. But, but we do understand Bovril, and Bovril. we we are Bovril. very chastened by that, and we will... <laughs> or not, chastened, as the case may be. Or chastened, <laughs> as the case may be, and we will not repeat that mistake. And so, you know, Mrs. Daphne St. John or Sanjan. <laughs> yep, and we will uh, try to avoid saying her last name for the rest of this podcast, and I think that'll actually be pretty easy. Her, we're going to call her Daphne. We'll call her Daphne. We should also mention that she has come for Parker Pine's help. She has seen his ad. Uh-huh. And she is in a bit of a pickle here, right? Because, and I have to say, this was one of the more intriguing setups that we've come across for Christy's short story. Mm-hmm. Here's what Christy writes. She dived into her bag, took something out, and flung it down on the desk, where, gleaming and flashing, it rolled over to Mr. Parker Pine. It was a platinum ring with a large, solitaire diamond. And then Pine picks it up, and he kind of examines it with a, a bit of an expert eye. An exceedingly fine diamond, he remarked, coming back to the table. Worth, I should say, about 2,000 pounds at least. Yes, and it's stolen! I stole it, and I don't know what to do! Dear me, said Mr. Parker Pine, this is very interesting. And I thought that was very interesting, too. Yeah, I right? also did. Yeah, I also good did. Way, good way into a story. You have someone coming into your office saying, I stole something and I don't know what to do. Let's talk about the world as it appears to be. So, yeah, Daphne has showed up in the office here. She's really upset. Here's what happened, according to her. She says that her friend Naomi, this would be Lady Naomi, our victim, had invited her to their country house for a long weekend. And she gave Daphne her ring to bring back to London because it needed some repairs. Okay, so far, so good. Daphne, unfortunately, had previously been on what I guess we would call a really long bender. (laughs) Yeah. In which she partied and gambled away every single thing she had. And she just, she she rather charmingly owns up to it. You know, it is charming. I have to say, like, she makes an effort to be very winning to Parker Pine. Yeah, she says, you see, I'm frightfully extravagant. And Gerald gets so annoyed about it. Gerald's my husband. He's a lot older than I am. and He's got very, well, very austere ideas. And then she talks about all the things she did. I went over to Luchuque with some friends. She played some sort of arcane card games. And she lost. And it went on and on and on. And she got into a hole. So what she did is that she... Kept gambling. She, well, yeah, she kept gambling, and, and at the point at which she has this ring, she has all these debts to pay, and she takes that ring from Naomi, and she has every intention of pawning it to get the money that she needs to pay off her debts, which she does, all while making a very good paste copy of the diamond, which she puts in an authentic box, and sends back, quote-unquote, repaired to her friend Lady Dortheimer, to Naomi. She has then come into some inheritance. 
And so she has now come back to Parker Pine because she is guilt-ridden. She gives Pine the ring that she has bought back from consignment. And she wants a way to figure out how to switch it out for the paste copy that Naomi has on her finger that she doesn't know that she has. Right. So presumably if she had never come into this inheritance, she was okay with Naomi having the paste copy and being none the wiser because she had no way of buying back. Well, I mean, or she was going to just feel super guilty forever. Right. But she, by gaining this inheritance, she's actually put herself in the dilemma because she now wants to do the right thing and return the diamond that she's been able to buy back to her friend. So again, super charming. She's like, I did a bad thing and then I did an even worse thing to correct for the bad thing, but then a good thing happened to me and now I want to do an even better thing for my friend. So it's all very, very charming. And it is a dilemma because, you know, she can't just send the real ring diamond back. ring to her no, because then not. it'll be obvious that she gave her a paste copy before. Mm, so it's, yeah, it's a real dilemma here. So, of course, Parker Pine then calls in his workers who we've seen before. One Claude Luttrell. <laughs> oh my God. Mr. Handsome. Flutter my heart. Christy just never passes up an opportunity to tell, to tell us how handsome. Claude Luttrell was one of the handsomest specimens of oh lounge lizard to be found in England. And then also Madeline de Sarah, who we also saw. I mean, we've only done two Parker Pine short story. Well, actually, we have done three because we did that Death on the Nile out of order. But the first two Parker Pine stories, The Case of the Middle-Aged Wife, featured Claude Luttrell. And then The Case of the Discontented Soldier featured Madeline de Sarah. The most, quote, most seductive of vamps, end quote. The lounge lizard and the vamp. <laughs> so what does he have them do? He has them, of course, be dancers to show up to this ball sort of thing that the Dordheimers are hosting. They also get this rather intricate lighting info from Daphne about, you know, how the lights work at the, the Dordheimers. Which seems really weird, but okay. Obviously, this is not so much of a mystery. This is a jewel theft and we only have the victim and the person telling us this story. So there are no clues to go through here. Let's just talk about what's actually happening here and how Parker Pine pulls off his very own solution to this dilemma. Well, Parker Pine actually pulls off his own kind of heist. We could say that the world as it appears to be is that Claude Luttrell and Madeline de Sarah go to this ball, they pose as dancers, and they do they make the switcheroo. While Claude is dancing with Lady Dordheimer and just overwhelming her with his handsomeness and just his his virility he manages to slip the paste ring off and put the real ring on and then the paste ring is sent back to parker pine and when daphne comes in he has the ring that's the world as it appears to be but what actually happens the reality is Daphne comes back to Parker Pine's office to see the results of this switcheroo, right? The switcheroo for the paste ring to the real one. And Pine, you know what he does, Kemper? What does he do? He gives her the paste ring. Well, it's actually, and I appreciate Christie's consistency here with Parker Pine because there's a bit of back and forth about his fee first. Because Parker Pine is all about the fee. Yes, and you know what? It's very charming. I like the business element. I like it a lot. Yeah, well, and it's really funny because it also gives us, as astute readers, you could say this is actually a clue that the world as it appears to be is not 
actually the way that things are because Parker Pine says, here's my bill of expenses. And he says, train fares, costumes, and 50 pounds to Michael and Juanita. Right. 65 pounds, 17 shillings. And she says, well, what about a fee? This is only for expenses. And Parker Pine says, in this case, there is no fee. And, you know, we should immediately be thinking, wait, mercenary Parker Pine, that does not seem right. And she she says, oh, Mr. Pine, I couldn't really. And Parker Pine says, my dear young lady, I insist. I will not touch a penny. It would be against my principles. Here is your receipt. And now he gives her the paste ring. And we find out what, Catherine? Well, Naomi's ring was never stolen. What? Yeah, herein lies the con, but Parker Bryan was way too smart for it. So Claude, under the guise of super sexy dancer named Jules, along with Madeleine, did the sexy dance times at the gala, and Claude romanced Lady Dorheimer as the lights dimmed due, of course, to that planned power outage. And, yeah, he did slip the ring off her finger, but then he put it right on because it was the real deal. He just put it right back on. There was no switcheroo. There was no switcheroo. None. It's a bit of a twist that you would expect in one of the Ocean's insert number here movie. No, I thought the same thing, actually. Right, it has a little bit of that, like, oh, you think there's a switcheroo, but there's no switcheroo, and that's the ultimate twist. I mean, clearly we both watched Ocean's 8. (laughs) Yeah, but it's totally in keeping with the light hijinks of that series. The thing thing that you thought is not the thing that we actually did. Yeah, yeah. The reason why there was no switcheroo is that Parker Pine realized that Daphne was totally lying. Mm -hmm. She is not a friend of Lady Dordheimer's because that's what she what she put herself out to be. Yeah, one of like one of her best friends, of course. Yeah, and this is actually, I mean, this is maybe one of Parker Pine's more sick burns that I think we've come across in this book because. He totally calls out Daphne for changing her appearance in the pretense that she was a much more rich friend of Lady Dordheimer rather than her secretary. Yeah, she dyed her hair, etc. Here's what he says. He says, so what happened? When he's talking about this hypothetical secretary named Miss Richards, who may or may not have been trying to pull the wool over his eyes, he says, first I fancy Miss Richards invested in a La Marveilleuse transformation. Number seven, side parting, I think. His eyes rested (laughs) innocently on his client's wavy locks, shade dark brown. He's like, please, I know exactly what you're doing down to the number that you chose. And there's like the kind of this like emphasis within the Parker Pine stories on, you know, we had that makeover in the the middle-aged wife. Like Parker Pine knows his way around a salon. Do you know what I mean? Well, and of course, and also his vamp is very, very designed. Yeah, very Mm -hmm. knowledgeable and designed to make these cons more interesting. And so Ernestine Richards... Which is, in fact, the secretary's name. Ernestine Richards underestimated Parker Pine. She saw the notice in the newspaper, and she thought, well, this is the perfect way to execute a con. Yep. Except she wasn't very good at it. Nope. What she was doing was, one day the setting of Lady Dorheimer's diamond ring became loose, and Miss Richards brought it up to town to have it fixed. But squid cut or pear shape, these rocks don't lose their 
So she shows it to Parker Pine. And Parker Pine examines it. She does that, and then she has a copy made. She's doing that all on the same day. Then when she hands over the ring at Waterloo Station, because notice the ring is not given to him at that consultation. I mean, that's a key point, or else this whole thing wouldn't have worked. The false ring is what she hands over the last minute at Waterloo Station. And she, she even writes, quite rightly, Miss Richards did not consider that Mr. Luttrell was likely to be an authority on diamonds. But just to satisfy myself that everything was above board, I arranged for a friend of mine, a diamond merchant, to be on the train. He looked at the ring and pronounced it once. This is not a real diamond. It is an excellent paste replica. But the diamond that she brings in at the beginning it's, of the story is the real one. Real. It's actually like a clever little plot because, you know, her employer says, can you go into town and fix the setting on my ring? Right. So she takes the real ring with her. She brings it to Parker Pine. Parker Pine looks at it. He asks her, you know, he confirms that it's the real ring. We see that happening. This is an actual diamond ring. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Then, after having this consultation with him, she goes and gets a paste copy of it, and it's the paste copy that is then picked up by Claude Luttrell at Waterloo Station. But then Parker Pine, because he's Parker Pine, has that ring examined by a diamond merchant. Tiffany's. pronounced to be a paste replica. So before they even do the non-switcheroo, they know, yes, this woman is trying to pull one over on us. So that's been ascertained. And then they do the non-switcheroo and Parker Pine has, of course, the paste replica that Ernestine Richards gave to Claude Luttrell and he gives it back to her. And that's after she had just paid for all of his expenses. And that is in keeping with him. I mean, he gets reimbursed, but obviously there's no fee. She says... This is kind of like the moment, too, where not that it necessarily happens, but you imagine the accent dropping. And she says, you oily old brute. So, like, I I imagine her being cockney all of a sudden, leading me on, making me pay expenses all the time. Are are you Eliza Doolittle right now, Trevor? (laughs) All I want is a room somewhere. Far away from the cold night air, with one enormous chair. Oh, gone. Um, so, <laughs> so, so then she she chokes, she rushes out the door. And then I love this too. Parker Pine says, your ring and holds it out to her. He knows how to serve it, Parker Pine. And then she snatches the ring from him and flings it out the open window. And then this is how the story ends. Mr. Parker Pine is looking out of the window with some interest. As I thought, he said, considerable surprise has been created. The gentleman selling dismal Desmonds does not know what to make of it. It being the fake ring that was just flung onto the yeah, pavement. It looks, so, like it looks to be a huge diamond. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. A dismal Desmond, interestingly, is an extremely au courant reference for a short story written in 1932. Dismal Desmond was a very popular toy dog, a stuffed dog that uh, was sold quite widely in the late 20s and early 30s in the UK to children. He's dismal because he has a sort of frown, a sad frown, and even a little tear, I think, in some of his iterations on his face. 
And I was doing a little bit of online research into this. Apparently, the reason why Desmond is so dismal is that his owner, Daisy Duda, had died and left him all alone. And he used to be a white dog when he was all happy with Daisy. But when she died, his misery came out in black spots all over his body, which is why he looks like a Dalmatian, although he has the ears of a hound dog. So that's curious. And a little bit of trivia here. Apparently, there was also a cheerful Desmond who had a smiling face, but that version was never as popular. And I have to think that it's not only the alliteration of Dismal Desmond, but there is something quaintly charming and I would even argue uniquely British about a children's stuffed animal that looks miserable. (laughs) (laughs) And I say that with all of the love that I have as an American Anglophile. Dismal Desmond was the mascot of the ladies' tennis team at Wimbledon and also the England cricket team of the time. So super popular and was produced up until World War II, apparently. But I also learned in my online travels about Dismal Desmond that there was a resurrection of the stuffed animal in the 80s and 90s. So perhaps some of our listeners grew up with a Dismal Desmond or even have a Dismal Desmond on the shelves of their bedrooms or within their attics uh, or closets somewhere. And if you do, we would love to see your Dismal Desmond. So perhaps you would like to Instagram a photo of your Dismal Desmond or, or tweet a photo to us or even email us a photo. We always give out that contact information at the end of the episode. So we would love to hear from you because sure, we can Google image Dismal Desmond and you also listener can do that if you so desire, but it's much more fun to get a glimpse of a Dismal Desmond in situ, as it were. Moving right along. I I do have to say, she must have put considerable funds into that paste ring because it's said in the story that it's good enough to fake a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I'm imagining that she didn't have a 3D printer like in Ocean's 8. So No, and I'm I, assuming I, in 19 in 1932, I would think that you should have held on to that ring and used it for another con. Seriously. Yeah, I mean, costume jewelry has value in and of itself, but I think she was just so incensed. I also just have to mention because there we get another little tidbit of Parker Pine's statistical mm-hmm. musings, which I quite appreciate. He is schooling her on crime not paying and specifically dishonesty not paying. He says, I have had a long experience in the compilation of statistics. From that experience, I can assure you that in 87% of cases, dishonesty does not pay. 87%. Think of it. Except every (laughs) single thing Parker Pine has ever done is dishonest. Well, you know, it's dishonesty for a greater I sub- I, I mean, one I sub- could argue more lofty sure, purpose. and I suppose and, you know, we are rooting for Parker Pine, but to think that Parker Pine is doing things legitimately would be to misunderstand what Parker Pine is doing. <laughs> I do also have to say that I, I appreciated this story as a fractured spin on one of my favorite short stories that I think many a middle or high schooler probably read within an English anthology, Guy de Maupassant's The Necklace. Yeah, sure. It's such a good, vicious little story of the woman who she borrows a necklace from a rich friend of hers, and she's sort of struggling on that edge between 
middle class and and having pretensions to a higher lifestyle. So she borrows this necklace and she has this wonderful night and she feels like she's finally about to make it into the upper echelons of society. And then she finds out at the end of the evening, oh my God, the necklace fell off and it's lost. And she buys another necklace of equal value to give back to her friend because she can't not give her the necklace and spends like the next 20 years paying off what that necklace cost in installments and descending into, you know, greater degradation and poverty with her husband and her hands get raw and red and she does all this work. And then the kicker at the very end of the, of the story is that she runs into her friend again, like in a park or something. Cause it's the only place where they would meet at this point. You know, she makes mention of that wonderful necklace and her friend is like, Oh, that, that was just paste. That's the end of the story. I think that there's another analog, and it's a story that a lot of people would have read, and I don't think that I can attribute it to any one author, but there are these essentially, essentially, let's just call them scary stories to tell in the dark. A creepypasta, if you will. I mean, I have to tell you that I don't really know so much what creepypasta is, and I don't think you do exactly either, because I think we're old. I know what a no, I actually do know what a creepypasta is, because the phrase bedeviled me for so long that I finally just looked it up. And you know what it actually comes from? It's, it's just a scary story that people disseminate specifically online or over the interwebs. The pasta is just a bastardization of paste. So it's like a story that you copy and paste. Interesting. And that's why it's called a creepy pasta. That's interesting. Yeah. Good mm-hmm. to know. I think a lot about the fact that I read um, scary stories in like anthologies when I was a kid. And a lot of them would be poison jewelry or dresses. Mm-hmm. And that was a definite thing. And I would say a lot of scary stories. Well, I guess things could have been worse for Daphne yeah, St. For John sure. slash St. For sure. I mean, but I think that the <laughs> I think that it's really funny that the story about the stolen jewels is repeated over and over again. Well, you know, jewels are important. They're an important status symbol. And um, there's a reason why they keep popping up time and time again in these sorts of stories. Or they're just very pretty and that makes the stories more interesting. They are very pretty. lady who I have to say I don't think Parker Pine made her happy did he but you know what you cross Parker Pine at your own peril oh he you know what Parker Pine is not going to be messed with he is not going to pull any punches nope and this is a story in which the person who sought Parker Pine's help tried to mess with him and guess what happens to you nothing good nothing good join us next week for a novel 
That novel would be Murder is Easy. We're very excited. Our first non-Poirot novel in so many, many, many months. It's true, and I also want to point out, and I think this is particularly important, guess what our next novel is after Murder is Easy cover? I believe our next novel is... And Then There Were None. We were very excited. Wow. We have we have so much to cover with that novel because we do. We have the novel itself, and then we have many, many, many film adaptations. Absolutely. And so I don't want to be negative about Murder Is Easy. The thing that I want to mention, though, is that we are really excited about it. That there were none. <laughs> very, very, very excited. This is true. Speaking of jewels, Christy Crown Jewel right there. I think you could make that argument. We will be discussing whether or not that is the case when we rank that one. I'm very excited for that. You know, will it beat the big four? I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> not sure. I'm not sure. Will it just edge out the secret of chimneys? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> one never knows. One never knows. Well, join us for that. And if you would so desire, please feel free to reach out to us before then via email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. We're on Twitter at All About the Dame. Catherine is on Twitter at Robcat. We're on Instagram at All About Agatha. And we would love for you to rate and review us. Please take a moment to do that. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.